may be seated. We come uh, together today on the Lord's Day to worship Christ who is risen and coming again. Um, we sing the gospel, we pray the gospel, we preach the gospel, we demonstrate the gospel through our generous offering, we um, symbolize the gospel in taking communion together at the end. Um, so all of this um, is about uh, making much of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're here this morning. Um, praise God for the local church who exists to gather um, as the people of God for that end. And I just want to take a moment, um, just to one more time, pray um, for the local church, if you could bow your heads with me. God, thank you, Lord, for um, the provision of Jesus Christ in saving a people and setting them apart for your service. God, we want to pray um, for, for the churches right now that preach and proclaim the gospel that are gathered like us, that we would be one with them and like-minded with the gospel of Christ, that you would bless uh, Stone Coast and Warren, um, who meets right now, and also Mount Hope in Bristol, right down the road. God, I pray for the pastors as they preach. I pray for the hearers as they hear, and I pray for lost people to come to know and trust in Christ. Amen. So this morning, um, we're excited to be with you um, and to just announce the glorious news of Jesus Christ. Um, some of us are very familiar with what that is already. We've known it for a while, but for some of us it might be new. And we're, we're coming to a, a section of Scripture um, that makes much of what Jesus Christ did for us. And what a powerful Scripture it is indeed. If you've ever interacted with a person that's done something confusing to you, you might ask them what they had in mind by whatever they did, right? Perhaps you've uh, done some kind of building project or designed something with someone, and we want to be on the same page. And what we mean by that was we're trying to understand each other's brains. What are you thinking about? What is it that you want? Some of us experience this to a small degree and even just kind of making our space more delightful and comfortable for people and guests and whatnot. And as we designed and people were, what are you thinking? What is it that you want? We want to be on the same page. We're searching for um, some kind of motivation. Have you ever thought, what was he thinking? Right? How many people have ever said that? What were you thinking when you did that? Um, maybe, like me, many times, maybe daily, you say, what was I thinking? <laughs> We're searching for the, the motivation, the, the intent of an action. And anyone that's ever experienced even a small amount of life, I think, knows, um, no doubt, has sought to understand why God would allow or even directly cause certain events in life to happen. What is in God's mind in this moment, whether it be good events to us or bad? We just want to understand his will and his purposes and what is in his heart. So we seek to understand him. We seek to understand his motivations and his heart. Romans 11.34, who has known the mind of the Lord? It's mysterious to, it, to us at times why God works the way he works why he does the, the things that he does. It's not so, isn't it funny though, it's not so mysterious to us when the thing is a good thing. <laughs> oh, thank you God, isn't this wonderful? It's only mysterious to us when it hurts. Isaiah chapter 40, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth 
in a basket or weighed the mountains on his scales and the hills in a balance. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Indeed, good question. Who can? In the Gospels, we clearly have laid for out, out for us the story of the cross, don't we? Very clearly. In the letters of the New Testament, we have explained for us the meaning of the cross. But this passage provides for us something very unique and something rare. It provides for us what was going on in the eternal mind of Christ when he decided to take on flesh. What was in his mind? How did he process? Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he decide to endure the cross? So we're on holy ground here. One of the most profound sections, I think, unfolding the identity and actions and motivations of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of great change. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's this downward type of dissension for Jesus. The one who was by very nature God took on by very nature humanity, then submitted that humanity as a slave and subjected himself to death, but even death on a cross, being executed as a villain. You see the downward humiliation of Jesus. What was going on in his mind? Our text brilliantly and amazingly tells us, have this same mind in you, just as Jesus had. Wow. Really? Because I don't think like that. I think like this. Right? I'm already at the bottom. I'm with the whale poop. Right? And I want to climb. I want to be with the seagulls above the surface of the ocean and then on top of the mountain and everyone to applaud me. Right? That's, that's my spiral. I'm spiraling up. But Jesus said, but God says in his word, Paul says to us, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Fascinating. Who did not consider equality with God a thing to his... So here we have, he's considering something. As the eternal son of God, the one who knew no beginning, considers, he's thinking, shall I do this? Shall I become a man and die a death on a cross? And why would I do it? The text literally reads, he himself, he emptied. He himself, he humiliated. Isn't that incredible? This was not forced on him. The father didn't make him do it. And when he came to this earth, he could have blasted everyone away with the breath of his nostrils, but he didn't. He himself took up a cross. Perhaps this is the most sacred text in all of scripture, friends. Because in it, we have the mind of Jesus unfolded. So what was the mind of Christ? Why did God become man? Then man become slave. And then slave become villain. And offer his life on a cross. What was he thinking? Why did he do it? And why are we supposed to be like him? And I want to offer two answers from this text that we see pretty clearly humiliation and rescue. So for all of you who criticize me for always having three points, 
here's just two, humiliation and rescue. Now, we hear the word humiliation, and it comes with a lot of baggage, socially speaking. Nobody likes to be humiliated. Um, A lot of times people are bullied, both as children and as adults. And, of course, this is a word that's an ugly word in our culture, as it should be. But the word humiliate simply means for one's position to be lowered or reduced, to have a higher status and then some kind of lower status. It's to be humbled. And our text reads, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So here... The eternal God becomes incarnate. He takes a lower position. He is being humiliated. You see? Humbled. He takes on flesh. The one who is in very nature God paused to consider something, and what he was considering was, I will humiliate myself. I will humble myself. Thus opening the door to the mind of Christ. He did not consider this equality with God a thing to his own advantage. Some um, um, text, it says, who was in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations read, who was in the form of God, this is maybe more what you're used to if you've read um, any amount of the Bible before, who was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Many people have heard it like that. In the original language, though, the author's laboring to teach that the one who took on flesh was really and truly God himself, the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, the verb, the was, though he was in the was, he was in the form of God is the verb to be in Greek. And it's not a simple usage. It's, it's, a, it's a strong usage of the word. It's very rare in scripture. And it means to be really and truly, to be characteristically by nature God. So if any of us are confused about what the Bible's testimony about who Jesus is, it very clearly says here, he was very really truly God himself. There is no confusion about it. So here, really and truly God, the human Jesus was the result of a change, right? He took on flesh, that flesh he did not have before. For the Son of God, who Jesus was, existed before. Friends, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you're going to know that someone was wrestling with Jacob one day. And that someone was the Son of God. Someone was in the burning presence. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Someone was in their midst, keeping them alive. And that someone was the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the Son of God. Did you know that when Moses approached the burning bush in the Old Testament, that the fire that the, the, the did not consume the bush was the presence of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Christ. And he is also the one that Joshua, later on after Moses, bowed down to in reverent worship. Christ, the Son of God, existed in eternity past. 
So here we have God in the flesh, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? God. The word, according to this text, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Let's try that again. And the Word was God. The Word was God. The Word is not some created thing. The Word is not a tree. It is not a gnat. The Word is God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amazing. The Word is God. God is the Word. The Word is the flesh. Flesh is God, right? The, he who became flesh was God Himself. Colossians chapter 1, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. And get this, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The heart that pumps in my chest is pumping because Jesus Christ, this moment, is sustaining it and causing it to work. So friends, isn't it true that all of life is a miracle? The fact that my skin heals itself does so because of the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's bad grammar. <laughs> before Abraham was, I was. If he's trying to say, I'm, I'm just some kind of distant angel, right? I'm Michael or Gabriel, uh, but still a created thing. Before Abraham was, I was. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying before Abraham was, I am, I exist, I'm the existing one. The one to, to whom which everyone else relies on their own existence. Jesus Christ, the pre-existing one, the pre-incarnate one, very really and very truly God himself did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Now that's incredible. What does this mean, equality with God? Certainly his divine glory. I smashed my hand earlier and it really hurts. So sorry. <laughs> um, what, what does this mean, equality with God? Cer it, would, it would certainly mean his divine glory, the full expression of all of the privileges and rights of God himself. God at any point can do anything that he wants because he possesses all power and knowledge. He possesses all glory. So this laying aside, this emptying, emptying of himself is the emptying of this. He didn't use his divine nature for his own advantage. He used it, surrendered it for a greater purpose. Was this the mind of Christ? Self-denial. Making himself nothing. Emptying himself. That great theological term that some of us might be familiar with, the kenosis, the emptying of Christ, the real-time humiliation of Jesus. And what does this mean? What did the eternal Son empty himself of? It can't mean he emptied himself of deity. He would cease to be God if he did that. And God can't cease to be God. That's not possible. It can't all, it, neither can it mean he emptied himself of the attributes of deity because, again, if he lacks the attributes of deity, he's not God. 
He would cease to be God. Rather, what it means is he gave up his rights. He had the right to not be humiliated. He had the right to not take on flesh. He had the right to not experience pain or death. But he denied himself of his rights, and he took on flesh. Just as he was really and truly God, the eternal son, imagine, became. How does God become anything? The eternal son became really and truly man. Not half man and half God. He wasn't a cyclops. Not like God, but really a man. And not like man, but really a God. You see? Really man, really God, at the same time, the word made flesh, the God-man. Emptied himself. Denied himself. The rights of his glory. In Isaiah 53, therefore I will give him, because the Messiah has done this, I will give him a portion among the great. I will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. He emptied himself out unto death. You see, that's what he's emptying. He's emptying himself out unto death. Numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's emptying himself out of his rights so that he can bear the sin of many. And die the death they deserve. Listen to these wise words from a great scholar. He says, The thought is that of a deliberate, conscious consigning of oneself to a foreseen situation. The servant of the Lord brought himself voluntarily and totally to death. Jesus, in order to die, first brought his total being down to the condition of the Lord's servant and voluntarily submitted himself to death. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He denied himself. Was this the mind of Christ? To become an obedient servant, take on the form of man, not to be lauded or opulent, but to become a slave. Was this the mind of Christ? His glory, his nature, his rights were not used for self-promotion, but for something to be poured out into, to be emptied of death. And to what end? Oh, and this is the best part. Let's look at rescue. Number two. In being found in appearance as a man, well, what did he do? Did he come as a great king? Bow to me, you weaklings, or I'll destroy you. Give me all your money and your children. Right? Was this the kind of human existence that he chose, like the ancient pharaohs thought of themselves, or the Caesars, God incarnate, to be worshipped and lauded? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself as a man. So not only did he humble himself from Godhead to manhood, he humbled himself in his manhood to slavery. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And there's the money word right there, cross. Underline it in your Bible. What we find happening here is that he who was really and truly God, who had emptied himself of his divine rights and full expression of all his glory, who became really and truly man, had done this to become a curse 
to take on the wrath of God the Father. For he would die a death on a cross. Scripture says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Who would have believed that this Jesus, this man, the one from Bethlehem, the carpenter's son, was the eternal son of God made flesh? Who would have believed this? That's what the author of Isaiah 53 is saying. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The carpenter's son, born in a manger, the eternal God made flesh. Listen to this, remember this popular Christmas hymn. See amid the winter snow, born for us on earth below. See the gentle lamb appears, promised from eternal years. Hail that ever blessed morn, hail redemption's happy dawn. Sing through all Jerusalem, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who throned in height sublime sits amid the cherubim. Was this the eternal Son of God made flesh? Who has believed this, our message? And what kind of existence did this eternal God made flesh live? Not pomp or glory, not wealth, power, and praise. No, friends. One writer says, he chose rather to take on that one thing which without his consent had no power against him, death. Wow. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It also says that Jesus knew no sin. So hypothetically, death was his slave, but he submitted to it. He chose rather to take on the one thing without his consent, had no power over him, death. He held nothing back. Was this the mind of Christ? And the death he died was on a cross. Now why is that significant? Let's be reminded of it in the, one of the letters of the New Testament in Galatians. You know what it says? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay, just a little Old Testament lesson for you guys. God gives the law to Moses. And he says, Moses, if you break this law, these, these represent all of my holiness and my goodness and righteousness. It's what I am like. If you break these things, you are under my curse. Separation from me, eternal death. If you keep them, you'll be blessed and prosperous. But as you all know, we all broke them. So we're all under the curse of the law, which is outlined in the law in the Old Testament. And this is what Paul is referring to. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because we're lawbreakers. We have broken God's rules, his righteous regulations. We have scorned him. We've worshipped dumb idols. We've done, we've done everything, that, everything else that he's told us not to do. And we deny him and ourselves in the process. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of, of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified, made right before God. You can't erase our disobedience. No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And why is that? Because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is written on the tree. All of the curses of the Old Testament, the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, were put on him and not us. All of the anger that God has towards sin and our disobedience was put on him and not us. He became a curse for us to rescue us, to reconcile us to the Father who loves us and orchestrated this plan of redemption with the Son before any of us were even in existence. So when we hear the Lord's cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can understand clearly why he who was really and truly God became really and truly man, subjecting himself as a slave, becoming obedient to death on a cross to rescue sinners, to take the curse so that none of us who call on him by faith would ever have to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? To rescue is the mind of Christ. To take the, the curse sinners deserve. He who was really God and truly God came down to the earth, down as a man, down as a slave, down to the curse of death. And he did it for us. He did it for you. And he did it for me. Wow. And did you notice something really peculiar? That the rescue of God, the redemption that he provides for us, is the exact opposite posture of Satan. Because Satan said, I will rise myself above the Most High, I will make my seat above the clouds of the heavens. Right? The reverse. And Jesus, that, that was the, the curse of sin, our self-exaltation. Our self-promotion separated us from God, made us out to be our own gods, and the solution that God used to save us is to do the exact opposite. To make himself low. Incredible. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, this was the mind of Christ. Amen? I can't imagine having that kind of mind. Yet the call to all believers everywhere in your relationships with one another have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. So we look around us and we see faces. And the Bible calls us to have this mind towards you the way Christ had that mind toward us. The mind of not self-seeking, but taking the back seat to bless and honor someone else. Teach, O oh, teach us, holy child, by thy face so meek and mild. Teach us to resemble thee, 
in thy sweet humility. Amen? Would you join me in prayer? God, we come to you this morning, and we can't imagine um, all the goodness that you provide for us, for us sinners who put ourselves before you, who applauded ourselves, disobeyed your word, worshipped everything but you. And all your righteous anger could have just wiped us off the map, but because of your great love for us, you did the opposite. Your son lived in humiliation, lowering, lowering, lowering to the grave, bearing the curse of our sin. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, turn from your sin. Trust in him. Because that's the kind of love the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for you. Come to faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Believe him this morning that that extravagant love was done for sinners like you and me. Trust in him. If you feel like that's you right now, you're coming in faith to Jesus Christ, oh friend, don't hide it under a bush. Come talk to me or someone after church so that we can rejoice with you and talk to you and encourage you. And God, as a church, we come to you and understand that at times in life, Oh, how, how we feel burdened and stepped on and confused, abused. But God, help us to never forget the self-humiliation of Jesus. That he took it on with us. That he bears it for us. And we can be free in Christ. God, we thank you, Lord. This is joy. We thank you, God, that we don't have to worry this morning about how we might feel because the blood of Jesus Christ, if it has set us free, we are free indeed, no matter how we feel. God, I, I, I imagine that some people on that day during the plagues of Egypt, that final plague when God revealed to Moses that all the firstborn children would die except for those who had put the blood around their doorposts. I imagine that some people who had put that blood around their doorposts sat and waited anxiously inside, wondering if it would work, wondering if somehow they would lose their beloved child. But friend, oh God, it matters not how weak our faith is. What matters is the blood of Christ. God, we thank you, Lord, that because of the humiliation of Jesus and because of the faith you've provided us to believe and trust in you, there is no condemnation for us. And that all of our sins are forgiven. God, we have an eternal hope. And thank you for Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. God, thank you for this beloved church. Thank you, God, for our guests here this morning. Teach us the gospel. Teach us to live out the gospel. Help us to not be self-serving. But God, I pray, Lord, like Jesus, 
we would take the advantage of the other before ourselves to rescue, to bless them. God, we love you. We thank you for this profound example, the epitome of humility in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Praise God this morning for the word that we heard. I hope that it was encouraged to you. Now we're going to symbolize the gospel. We preach the gospel. Now we're going to symbolize the gospel in taking the Lord's Supper. The bread symbolizes the broken body. The body that should have been broken was mine, but instead it was Christ's. The blood that should have been shed was, was mine, but instead it was Jesus. And sim- what we have in symbolic form is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. We want to take a moment for you um, as, a, as a church to just silently reflect. We're going to have some silence to silently reflect, to confess any sin that you might have to God. The Bible says don't take the supper in an unworthy manner. So as believers, we want to make, um, make restitution with our God um, before we participate. So we're going to do that in a moment. If you've never been here before, um, when the music starts, just at your own pace, we'll, you, we'll have, like I said, some silence. And, but at your own pace, you can come up and take the elements and receive them. Um, just come up um, in line. If these two gentlemen uh, disappear and you raise your head and they're gone, um, they're going to leave one of the, uh, the, the, the uh, plates right here in front of me. And also the, the cracker is gluten-free if s- some of you might have gluten allergies. But we're so uh, grateful again to meditate on the Lord's Supper. Also, if, if you don't know Christ, we're going to ask you to sit this out. The Bible says this is a uniquely uh, Christian uh, devotion. So if you're not a Christian, we have something more important for you, more, more unique, more special. We want to introduce you to Jesus Christ. So would you, during this time, just seek him, pray to him, um, ask him who he is, get to know him. Um, would you all bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare our hearts for this supper? God, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the gospel symbolized in the supper And we reflect on your word as it says in your gospel that Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom.
Please stand with us. He will hold us fast. Amen. Is our confidence 
and our hope and our life and our joy. God, life has a fearful path at times. And our love can be cold. But God, you will hold us fast. God, we thank you, Lord, that your love was not cold. And that you give us power to become hot again. I pray, Lord, that we would leave our resentment.